Welcome to session five of our seven-week series, When Trouble Comes. Lesson five begins on page 11 of your notebook, and you can get the notes by clicking on the class notebook button that's underneath your media player. Now you see at the top of page 11 that we're in section two, which deals with the purposes of suffering. We started this section last week looking at the inward direction of suffering, which was about the things that God does in us when he allows suffering to come into our lives. Today's lesson is titled, The Forward Direction of Suffering, the things that God is going to accomplish through us looking forward as a result of his allowing difficulty, adversity in our lives. When I look at this section, the purposes of suffering, and I think about purpose as it relates to difficulty, I think about how very important it is to know that there is in fact a purpose in whatever you do and whatever it is you're undergoing. Even if you don't know what the purpose is, it's extremely important for you to know that there is a purpose. Take for example in academics. If you're taking a class and you have a teacher or a professor teaching that class, you want to know that there's some end game here, that there's some purpose for spending the time, perhaps spending the money to take this class, and that there's going to be some benefit that's going to come out of putting in that effort and the money and the time for that particular course. So you don't want just busy work. You don't want a professor or a teacher who just gives you stuff to do because they have to give you stuff to do. One of the reasons that I like taking evening classes when I was in college is because I found that the evening professors were generally people who had a daytime job. And people with a daytime job had a different mentality than those who were tenured and their only lot in life was to make your life miserable by thinking of ways to give you stuff to do. And so we all know teachers and professors who gave us busy work. And you don't like busy work. You want to know that there's a purpose to the work that you're doing. Now that's in academics. But take another realm. Consider athletics. If you're on a team, you want to know, you want to have confidence that if the coach tells you to go through a set of drills, that that set of drills actually relates to what your team is going to be doing in that coming season, that it's actually going to have some benefit. So that when he shows up at a practice and he's going to put you through all of this stuff, that he's actually thought about the sequence that he's going to have you go through so that you get some benefit, some purpose in the game out of what you endure. And if you have that confidence in a teacher, you have that confidence in a coach, then you're willing to go through the difficulty, the adversity, the pain, because you know there's a good purpose for all of this. Now that same can be said and should be applied to the Lord, to God. Ask yourself, do you believe that God's a good teacher? Do you believe that God is a good coach? Do you believe that God prepares his assignments with purpose in mind? That God does not just give busy work. That God does not just show up at practice and go, I wasn't able to prepare for this, so let's put some pylons out there and you guys just start doing zigzags and run back and forth and then give me 50. That's 50 push-ups. I've been on teams where coaches did that kind of thing. But does God ever do that? And the answer, of course, is no. God never comes to the classroom. God never comes to the field or the court unprepared without knowing what it is that he's preparing for you and for him to accomplish through you, without knowing precisely how what he is putting you through is going to shape you for what he has for you. 
So one of the most important gifts that you and I can have, friends, is an absolute, unshakable confidence that in all of the things that God allows into our lives, He has purpose, even if we don't know what that purpose is. Now, with the teacher, professor, or with the coach, manager, and with God, all of that confidence depends on one word. It depends on trust. Do you trust the teacher? Most of my teachers, and I'm guessing most of yours, have been helpful, and you did trust them. We may have also had some teachers who gave us reason not to trust them. And then do you trust the coach? And again, most of my coaches were quite good and helpful to me, but not all had a plan or put the time into being better for the sake of the team. But do you trust God? Do you trust that God has an end game? And do you trust that ultimately that end game is a good one for you and for His glory? And if you have that trust, even though you can't see the specific purpose, you can believe God's Word that, in fact, He has that purpose. Romans 8.28 famously says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And the question is, since God is saying, I've got an end game, do you believe Him? Do you believe that God is putting you through this particular regimen at this time to prepare you for whatever contests are going to be played out in your future, in the season that He has for you? Do you trust God? Do you trust Him as the teacher? Do you trust Him as the coach? Well, on pages 11 and 12, we say that God indeed has purposes, and those purposes are forward purposes. And the first of those is at the top of page 11, where we say God desires to mature us. When we go through adversity, when we go through trials, when we go through difficulty, one of God's purposes is to mature us. And the example you see there on page 11 is the gym. Now, none of us has been able to go to the gym over the past couple of months of the quarantine, but try to remember back to when you were able to go. Now, these days when I go to the gym, it's just to use the treadmill for a pretty, a very non-intensive workout. Many, many years ago as a young adult, when I did frequent a gym, I do more than the treadmill. And I learned from those who were serious there that if you were going to lift weights, or if you were going to use the weight machines, that you wanted to set up your routine in such a way as to have sets and repetitions so that the last set caused significant strain. And that's the way the bodybuilders built muscle. They do their sets and their repetitions, and they set up the routine in such a way that the last routine causes significant strain in order for them to build muscle and go to next time. And as God matures us, a similar kind of thing happens. Notice the summary in the middle of page 11 with the illustration of the emperor moth. We say there the cocoon of the emperor moth is flask-shaped. In order for the perfect insect, insect, insect to appear, it must force its way through the neck of the cocoon after hours of intense struggle. Once someone witnessed that insect's labor and out of pity snipped the cocoon's confining threads to make the insects exit easier. Soon the moth emerged, but it had a swollen body and small, shriveled wings. Because this man had unwittingly eased the moth's struggle, its wings never developed. It spent its brief life crawling instead of flying through the air on rainbow wings. The man, in his kindness, did not understand that the moth needed the struggle in order to force fluid 
from its body into the wings so that flight would be possible. In the same way, we would not develop the emotional and the spiritual maturity that we need if God removed all of the struggles from our lives. Suffering is not meant to be fun or easy. Without discomfort in our lives, we would never develop a life of righteousness. No suffering or pain is needless. It all works to mature our souls and to build our inner beauty. May God use our struggles and our trials to propel us forward so that we'll develop fully and completely in Christ. Now, at the top of that section, we have some passages. Two of those are from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, and then chapter 5 and verse 8. I'm going to read those for us. First, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Christ had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who of the people are being tempted. So Jesus himself had to go through suffering as preparation for his ministry for us. And then in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 it says, Although he was a son, again speaking of Christ, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now those verses from chapters 2 and 5 of Hebrews, in chapter 2 it says he suffered, and then in chapter 5 it's giving us one of the reasons that he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect. Now, you read that as it applies to Jesus, and you might say, did Jesus have to be made perfect? I thought he was already perfect. Well, here it's talking about demonstrating his perfect obedience as a human being, come to represent human beings like us. That is, he lived the life that we were supposed to live, a perfect life of obedience. He demonstrated perfect obedience to the will of the Father, and as a result of that, he was able to accomplish the purpose for which he came, to be the source of eternal salvation. There was meaning in Jesus' suffering, and there's meaning in ours. A few weeks ago, we looked at James chapter 1 and what it says that trials produce in the lives of God's people. It tells us in James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this, The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Now, do you see a parallel there in what James is saying to us in our suffering and to what the writer of Hebrews said about Jesus in his suffering, that he was made perfect, mature through the things that he suffered? The Bible is saying the same thing is accomplished in our lives through our God-ordained trials as happened in Jesus' life. In James 1, 3, and 4, the word that's translated from Greek into English as perseverance is sometimes translated patience, sometimes also translated endurance. Our trials develop patience. They develop endurance. These are words that mean to bear up under difficulty, to bear up under strain. So when you go through trials and when you pass the test that God has for you, it's the testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith. It develops this ability to bear up under difficulty. And then in verse 4 of James 1, that ability to bear up under difficulty has an endgame. It says that perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, here's what that means. 
It's not that you and I will be sinless as we emerge from our trial, but rather that God is preparing you in the present trial to endure so that you can be prepared for the next ministry that he has for you. God is preparing you in the present trial in order for you to be prepared for the next ministry that he has for you. God always has something for you and me to do, and he prepares us for it. Now, we wish we knew ahead of time exactly what it was. But remember the coach and remember the teacher. You trust that there's an end game. You trust that there's a good reason for what they're putting you through. And now what God is saying is, I'm testing your faith, your belief. I'm testing whether or not you trust me in the midst of what's going on now. I'm preparing you for ministry in the future. Now hear this, friends. Every last thing that God allows into your life today is preparation for something he's going to have you do tomorrow. Every last thing. Now, even though we don't know the precise thing that God is equipping us for in our trial, we won't know that until after the fact, until after we look back and see how God used that situation and then used us. And until then, we won't know exactly what God had in mind, but we are given in Scripture some general assurances about things God will do as a result of our suffering, in addition to the specific work that He has that we're only going to find out later. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And so we are able to comfort others because of the comfort God has given us. What a beautiful promise that is. God says that I have specific things for you to do in the lives of others. I'm arranging your circumstances so that the trial of today is preparation for ministry tomorrow, and the specifics of what that will become are going to be clearer to you in the days ahead and in the years ahead. But in the meantime, you can know this no matter what. One of the things that I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you be a source of comfort to those in any trouble as you relate to them the comfort that you yourself received from me. So there is no such thing, friends, as meaningless suffering in the life of God's people. God desires a number of things. He always has an end game. The trials he allows are not busy work. They are not because of a lack of preparation or a lack of where this is all leading on God's part, ever. And one of those purposes is that God desires to mature us. Now, if you look at the bottom of page 11, God desires to mature us and God desires for us to be Christ-like. In order for us to be Christ-like, it means that he is going to remove any unnecessary edges from our lives in order to make a fuller picture of Christ emerge in our reflection. Many of you know the name Helen Keller. As a young girl, she became very sick. She recovered from that particular malady, but as a result of that illness, she was never again able to hear or see, and she was isolated from the voices and images of everyone that she loved. She became overwhelmed by the circumstances of her life. She became filled with rage. Life, she thought, was surely over for her, but her parents hired a teacher, Anne Sullivan. Now, many of you know the story that Anne Sullivan taught her to communicate by reading words written on her hands. Eventually, she was able to attend college, 
and even write her autobiography. She became a world-famous speaker, and her story inspired many because of the great obstacles that she had to overcome. Truly, Helen Keller knew suffering. But rather than being embittered by her struggle, she learned to recognize the character-building effects of suffering. Here's what she said. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened. Her vision was cleared, her ambition inspired, and her success was achieved even when she was both blind and deaf. Helen Keller could honestly say she was grateful. Here's what she says. The struggle of life is one of our greatest blessings. It makes us patient, sensitive, and godlike. Now here's someone who actually experienced that in very extreme ways, but God used that and her attitude and her perspective on what she went through to make her better rather than make her bitter in her suffering. The top of page 12, here's the summary of all of that. Becoming Christ-like, we say, must be intentional. Though it may not necessarily be actively pursued by us, God may use difficult circumstances, even suffering, to push us in that direction. Suffering is not always virtuous, but what it produces always is. When suffering has performed its work in turning our characters of coal into the character of diamonds, we will more naturally then just do what Jesus does. When we ask what would Jesus do, the answer will be clear and decisive. We desire to grow our souls so that we'll aspire to make choices and think thoughts and feel feelings that are in harmony with a Christ-centered life, regardless of the road conditions that we travel. So that requires that we step back and we ask ourselves, what is that purpose that God has in general for me and for all of life? And if your answer is anything other than to become like Christ, then you're giving the wrong answer. The right answer is everything that God allows into our lives is not only preparation for ministry in the future, but it's also designed for us to become more like Christ. And in fact, that's God's ultimate purpose for His creation. For the crowning achievement of his creative activity, humanity, to become like Jesus Christ, reflecting God's character back to him. Now, I want to briefly rehearse that with you, and then we'll look at the third forward purpose that God has for us in suffering. I remind you of the fact that God's purpose for humanity was and is that we become like him and reflect him back to him. You remember that in the opening chapter of the Bible when God created the world and on the final day of creation when he created humanity, he created us different than the rest of creation. He created humanity in his image. And to be made in his image means that humanity, unlike all the rest of creation, has this unique ability to think like God, to talk like God, and to act like God. We never are God, we never become God, but we can reflect God back to God. And that's what it means to be made in His image. So we were made to be mirrors, that when God looks at us, He sees Himself in our character. Well, so far, so good, except those mirrors that we were made to be are now broken, marred, distorted by the entrance of sin. And so now God looks at us and He does not see a clear reflection of Himself. He sees those kind of mirrors that you have at the funhouse at the carnival. So you walk by and you kind of sort of make yourself out, but you know you're kind of all over the place, and then you're big, and then you're small. 
You all remember that. Well, the image of God in us is distorted because it's broken. The mirrors have to be repaired. And that's what Christ does in salvation. Christ is engaged in the ultimate mirror repair project. And that's why Romans 8.29 says that God's purpose in saving us is that, quote, we might be conformed to the image of his Son. That is, we might become like Jesus, that we might reflect God. And that's what we were initially created for. And so when you were saved, when you came to God through Jesus Christ, he saved you for the purpose of you gradually, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, becoming like Christ, so that when God looks at you, he sees himself. And ultimately, he's going to have a perfect mirror in you and me, and we shall be like him, the Bible says. We will be glorified. We will be just like Jesus in our character. But in the meantime, he is shaping that. He's repairing that mirror. And part of that mirror repair project is to remove the edges from our sinful lives. And one of the means that God uses is suffering in order for that to happen. And so do you believe that God's purpose is a good one? And do you believe that God is actively pursuing that purpose in your life? Listen, you can know that God is absolutely actively pursuing that purpose and will never rest until it's achieved in your life. And here's why you can be confident of that. Because God's got a dog in this fight. God cares about this deeply. God has an intense interest in this. And the reason he has an intense interest is because everything that God does has one ultimate purpose, namely the glory of God. And the glory of God is the display of his character. He made humanity to reflect his character back to him. It's another way of saying that we were made to glorify God, and God will not rest until the whole earth is full of, you may remember, full of his glory. So that when he looks around, everywhere he looks, all he sees is a reflection of himself. Now, if that's the first time you've heard something like that, you may say, well, God's kind of narcissistic, isn't he? I mean, he just likes to see himself? Yeah, you betcha. And you know why? Because there is no higher thing to which God can aspire but himself. All things are God-referential. All things are for God and through God and to God. They begin with him and they end with him and they are made for him. Now, page 12, finally. God desires maturity. God desires Christ-likeness. And then lastly, God desires for us to have a personalized faith. An example we have there is from the Titanic, the movie, the Titanic. At the end of the movie, as the ship is sinking and as they've gone through all the drama of all of the people that are involved in the plot and that the plot is centered around, and as the ship is sinking, all the while you've had the band playing to try to comfort the people who are in their distress. But as you get toward the very end, you have the band leader say to the band, it's been marvelous playing with you. And he's thanking them for all the memories and all the things that they've been able to do together. And then the band members start to disperse knowing their fate. The band leader begins to play, Nearer my God to thee. And when the band members hear this, they come back and they begin to play this song with him together. Nearer my God to thee as they face impending death. Well, that is a time of adversity, to put it mildly. 
which reveals the personal nature of one's faith, a personalized faith. God desires for us to have this personalized faith, not a faith that's only confessional, only congregational, not a faith that's only when we're together. But God wants you, He wants me, He wants us individually to have an individualized, personalized faith in Him. And that's why in evangelicalism, we rightly make much of receiving Jesus Christ as your, quote, personal Savior. Because faith is not something that somebody else gives to you. It's not something that you acquire by virtue of just being around other people that have it. But rather, it's something that must be yours individually and personally. And one of the ways that you reveal whether or not you have that faith is through the process of adversity. The adversity may reveal deficiencies in what you believe, and God desires for those deficiencies to be exposed so that they can be filled and be strengthened. That's why in James chapter 1 it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds, because you know, and here's the phrase, the testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith. So what's being tested is again what you really believe. And in that dire moment, as the ship is sinking, this band leader's faith was exposed in a positive way. Nearer my God to thee. So think about the trials that you're going through now. Think about the trials that you've gone through in the past and ask yourself, what do they expose regarding what I believe about God? What's my personal belief about God? It's one thing, friends, to come to church when we're able to do that again. And then at the end of the prayer, we say, all God's people said amen, and we say amen. But it's another thing to be diagnosed with cancer and to be able to say, I believe that God is good and that God is in control. Now, do people really do that? Well, thanks be to God, they do. This past week marks four years that one of our beloved church members was called home by the Lord. I had the privilege of visiting with Peggy Charbonneau at her home and at the hospital on several occasions during that time that she suffered with cancer. And I remember being in the hospital room with her and Larry. and We just had a great time talking about life and about the future and about what the Lord may have in store. And I read from Scripture starting in Romans 8.28 to the end of the chapter. And when I was done, I was struck by the fact that as soon as I was finished, Peggy said, our God's in control, and I'm perfectly content. Now, that's a personalized faith that's been exposed, that made, was made known in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulty. But it could have been quite different, couldn't it? I mean, Peggy could have taken quite an opposite approach to that. Why, God, are you doing this to me? Why, God, are you allowing this into my life? You know the things that I still need to accomplish here. You know the love that I have for my family and the things that I want to do. And these are good things that we desire to do. So God, why are you doing this? Those would be legitimate questions. But in the midst of that, the real question is, do you believe, do you have faith that God has our good and his glory as his goal? Peggy Charbonneau and Larry Charbonneau believed that because they they did that, and so they are ministering to people, including me, in the midst of difficulty. John Piper wrote a book about his own battle with cancer called Don't Waste Your Cancer. 
He wrote that book after having written another book called Don't Waste Your Life. And then when he contracted cancer, he wrote Don't Waste Your, your Cancer. And the idea of the book is you're diagnosed with this scary disease, but don't waste it. See it as an opportunity to reflect Christ. See it as an opportunity to help others be strengthened in their personal faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Larry and Peggy did in the midst of their battle. And it's what God wants us to do in the midst of ours. And so friends, all of us have our varied circumstances. All of them have been designed by our loving God and designed for his good purposes to move us forward. Let's resolve together by God's grace for his work to have its good end in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these truths from Holy Scripture. The Bible is your word, and therefore its truth is eternal, as you are. And even though the last book was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it's still as relevant today as when it was first written. And you speak there of life as it really is. Life with all of its fallenness, all of the consequences of sin, all of the struggles that we have to keep ourselves focused upon what's real, upon what's true, focused upon you. So thank you, Father, for speaking of these things in your word and giving us this instruction, giving us these promises about what you are doing in the midst of all that is wrong in the good world that you made. Lord, sin has distorted your reflection in each of us, but thank you that you are restoring that reflection through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, that you use everything that you bring into our lives in order for that to happen. That you use the, the, the difficulties, the trials, the pain in order to shape us up into the image of the Lord Jesus. Help me to see it that way. Help all of us to see it that way. Help us in the midst of this so unusual time, this pandemic and all that goes with it, to see it that way. This week, may we have a clearer perspective, seeing these things as you design them to be seen. May we therefore be better able to reflect you, to bring glory to you. We pray all of this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you next week, Lord willing.